Hello there, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Annie and Kate. Today our guest is Kim Crawley. Hello Annie, how are you? I'm great, thank you Kate, how are you? I am well. And uh, Kim is a dedicated researcher in cybersecurity issues and she's also a published author. We have a trend of having published authors on our show. And she has worked for companies such as Sophos, AT&T, Cybersecurity, Blackberry, Silence, Tripwire, Vanafi. And um, tell us about your book, Kim. All right. So I've been researching and writing about all areas of cybersecurity pretty much for at least the past decade now. So I have produced a lot of content for the blogs belonging to the corporations that you just named there. Um, My career has really been shifting and evolving recently. Um, To me, you know, change is very scary for me. So the way I experience change is as something that the world imposes upon me. But the good news is that the change that the world has imposed upon me for the past couple of years has actually been really positive. Well, that's great. So I moved into... We need to to work out what we're drinking. I am, because it's god awful early in the morning here, because um, we have a uh, three continent uh, meeting. So I'm in Sydney, Australia, Annie, and I'm drinking coffee and I also have a cup of tea just in case because it's 7am. Annie, what are you drinking? Uh, I have, let's just show this to the camera. Um, it's called Bread and Butter. Uh, it's a Cabernet Sauvignon from um, California and it is really rather lovely. My, my brother's partner, Emma, bought it for us for Christmas and Geez, this is bad. I'm finally getting around to drinking a bottle of wine from Christmas in February. But I can confirm it's lovely. Excellent. What are you drinking, Kim? I am in Toronto, Canada, which is the Sydney, Australia of the Northern Hemisphere. That's how I always and, describe it. And I have a can of Monster Pipeline Punch. Um, and there's no alcohol in it, but there is an awful lot of caffeine in it. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Good way to get you going in the day. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get Annie to ask her her starter question. All right, so my starter question for you, Kim, and and it's something that I think we keep asking quite a lot of our speakers um, or, or guests on the podcast, particularly in the last six or so months, is how do you practice self-care? Oh, well, um, I moved into a new apartment. I did it, well, in the UK, you call them flats, right? In Australia, do you no, call them part? In Australia, both. We call them either. Okay. Good to know. And my bathroom is like a beautiful, deep bathtub, like really deep. Like when I'm sitting in my bathtub, I can fill the water up to like my collarbone when I'm sitting in it. That's incredible. And so I buy like a lot of fancy bath products and I program a bunch of podcasts into my phone and I lay my phone elsewhere in my bathroom while I'm having a bath and I listen to podcasts while bathing. Well, I think Kate will reiterate the importance of loving a good bath. <laughs> I don't have a good bathtub. I go to Annie's place where she has a fabulous one <laughs> just to turn up and have a bath. <laughs> wow. Like, Kate, she's like, I don't care about you. I'm just going for a bath. Oh, fair enough. 
<laughs> I used to, like there's an indoor swimming pool in this building, um, but because of the pandemic, all the amenities are closed. But before the pandemic, in the middle of my work day, I would just go and have a swim. See, now I'm with you on the swimming. One of my favorite things with swimming is to just put my head under the water, do a you know, front crawl and just literally kind of just keep going. And, and I love the idea of my, my, my head being under the water and I can't hear anything. And that sensory deprivation just, I don't know, it allows me, it allows my brain to go quiet. Yeah, water, water is very soothing. Mm, agree. Did you just say your brain never goes quiet, Kate? No, I, don't, I can't imagine it. Oh, no, I can. I can. When I take my ADHD meds, my brain goes quiet and it feels really weird. That's why I pretty much don't take them. I'm on ADHD meds too. Yeah, they calm, they calm, me, they calm me down a lot, but I, I feel, feel like I'm running on slow, so I don't take them anyway. Okay, so this is it. I'm going to stop at this point because I actually want to know more about this because I don't know a huge amount about ADHD and what it feels like. Um, so, Kate, you know, you've just said if you took your meds, it just goes too quiet in your head. Is that kind of what you just said? Yeah. And how about you, Kim? What does what does ADHD feel like for you? I was diagnosed with ADHD inattentive type, so I'm not prone to hyperactivity apparently. But I, I take it like I take a concerta first thing in the morning and I feel like I can take my my what I focus on. I guess this is a very basic explanation, but it feels like when I'm on concerta, I can look at each of my tasks that I have to do one-on-one -on -one instead of all my ideas and tasks like floating around my head furiously. I don't really feel quiet per se, more like instead of a camera taking like a wide angle shot, it's zeroing in, like it's closing up on each particular thing I got to work on. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that both because it's something that my I I am you know neuro not diverse at all. Um so it's always really interesting to to get folks to share that. Thank you. Well for for me it's it's like it, it, I can't do my I can't do my job on meds because my job is across so many things and I can't do it if I'm like a normal person really. <laughs> That that's that's basically my problem. Anyway, I wanna I wanted to ask you what book that you read that you would recommend to other people to read? Anything you like. Oh, that that's a good question. Well, um let me see here. I'm walking into my bedroom. This has absolutely nothing to do with cybersecurity whatsoever, but my lovely uh, stepmother-in-law got me this book for Christmas. Hmm. It's like a, it's like an illustrated guide to Japanese culture, and I'm really fascinated by Japanese culture, so I really enjoy that book. And yeah, I would definitely recommend that other people read it if they're as curious about Japanese culture as I am. 
So what, what, what makes you curious about Japanese culture? Have you been to Japan? I have never been to Japan, but um, I, I think my interest started early, but when I was a child with anime and with Japanese video games. Um, I didn't know at the time, but I watched the 1980s Astro Boy anime when I was little. And I wasn't aware that it was an anime, but I really liked it. And then we had like the, the not very good English dub of Sailor Moon in the mid nineties. And that was the first anime I had ever watched that I was aware that it was an anime. And, you know, it really captured my imagination. And from there, I became interested in anime and manga in general, especially shoujo stuff. And uh, I got really into uh, Japanese RPGs and stuff like that. So, you know, when you watch an anime or you read manga or you play a video game set in modern Japan and you see the characters... Uh, eating particular dishes or uh, celebrating particular holidays and it, it it makes you really curious about their culture so can you unpack rpgs for for our viewers because not everybody will understand what that means okay role-playing games so um role-playing games started with like tabletop role-playing games in the 70s like dungeons and dragons and whatnot it evolved into video games where you play a character or a group of characters and there's a storyline and the characters could have a certain level and the higher in level they are the better their stats are um they almost all rpgs have like hp so like hit points so if if uh, if a monster hits you you lose hit points and stuff like that um, I really like playing Japanese RPGs because you get to like explore this fascinating world and it's like really satisfying to watch your character level up and to reach different uh, points in the story and to uh, uh, fulfill quests and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm a really hardcore fan of Japanese RPGs. It's fascinating. I, I hadn't realized how big they were an influence on, on the sort of generation that grew up in the 90s and early noughts. Really, really big influence. That it... uh, JRPGs didn't really take off in the West until like Final Fantasy VII in 1997. So, yeah, I mean, it could be a generational thing to make you feel old I was 13 in 1997 so <laughs> trying to think how old I was um we can do maths later maths is not my strong point at the best of times it's eight o'clock in the evening here so my brain has been put in a box I, I can't remember how old I was but I was an enterprise architect at a large financial services firm yeah, I would have been 19 I think 18 or 19 I was trying to tell my firm that, that Y2K was a thing that we needed to prepare for. Oh, Y2K. What a beautiful remote. All right. We may have some people listening, Kate. What the hell is a Y2K? It was the year 2000. Phone me. Sorry? Someone was trying to phone me. Oh, right. Oh, cool. Look, we didn't we've had know. all sorts of things on the show. We've had children. We've had pets. 
maybe yeah. we need a phone call who knows hey um so the year 2000 uh there was a thing where they in the olden days they didn't program the year as four digits and uh computers were going to fall over so we actually did a demo to our board where we rolled the year to, to 2000 and the computer system baffed and they were like oh we need to give you some money <laughs> to fix that because we had a lot of computer okay. systems anyway so that was that was my life back in those days there's a lot of misconceptions about the Y2K bug because the layperson opinion is, oh, it was all overblown. They're making a big deal out of nothing. But the reason why it didn't like totally mess up our computer systems too badly was because programmers and computer engineers worked overtime to fix their systems mm -hmm. to allow four digits for the year. Well, actually, you know, the biggest the biggest issue, it turned out, wasn't 2000. It was 1999. So every, many systems had put for a year in the future that we will never get to, 9th of the 9th, 99. And so 9999 was, was uh, an unexpected, uh, when we tested for that, that everything completely broke with the 9th of the 9th, 99. So luckily, we'd done most of our remediation by that date. Wow. People and the people were programming that like in the 60s. 70s. Yeah, and it was, just, it was obviously a date that was so far in the future that nobody ever thought it would come. And that was just, you know, that, that was your, instead of putting a null date of having a null date in the field, you, kept, you had to put something. So they put 9999 and it happened. I hope in computer science school now they teach students not to do that sort of thing. <laughs> well, the thing is now memory is cheap. In the, in, the, in the 70s when they built a lot of these systems, memory was so expensive that you, you conserved every character you could. And we don't have to do that anymore. But, but now the big challenge is, is cybersecurity. So how did you get into cybersecurity? Oh, that's a very long story. How do I condense it? Um, I was very interested in computers when I was a little girl. Um, my dad in the early 90s would have technical problems with his uh, Windows 3.1 OEM. And uh, I, as a child, would, would help him with like auto exec bad issues and printer port issues and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, so I was really interested in computers at a really early age. My horrible teacher when I was 10 told me that I'd never have a career in computers if I didn't become a math whiz. She thought that she was encouraging me to improve my math, but as a kid with undiagnosed neurodivergence, uh, she was actually discouraging me from pursuing computing, right? I have so much like deep resentment and anger toward most of the adults who uh, had an, an effect on me when I was a kid. So uh, anyway, um, but so that delayed my computing career because I thought, oh, I'd never be a good enough math whiz. Um, but uh, in my mid-20s, I finally, like, I got some very basic IT certifications, so, like, CompTIA+, Plus, Network+, Plus, stuff like that, and I got a job as a remote desktop support agent. Uh, this was uh, 
mainly like via remoting and over the phone. And my job was just to fix whatever Windows issues I could possibly fix by remoting. And uh, I, I, I noticed that there were a lot of malware problems, like a large percentage of my tickets involved malware at some point or another. And I spent a lot of time removing malware from other people's Windows computers. This was like in the mid 2000s. Okay. And I saw the, some of the very earliest like ransomware. This was like before cryptocurrency. So ransomware would demand a credit card number. And I remember uh, if I wasn't dealing with a ransomware incident, I, if I just uh, stood up in my cubicle and listened around, I could probably hear some more of my colleagues dealing with ransomware incidents and having to plead with the customer like, no, don't give them your credit card number. No, I know you're, you're desperate, but no, don't do that. So, so yeah, I think, I think my fascination with malware started my interest in cybersecurity. And um, a few years later, I was uh, working on some project with the Toronto Star because I've always loved writing. And I, I met someone who thought it would be really good for me to write about computer security for a website that I don't want to name because they were really shitty to me. But I did that for a few years. I wrote, wrote and researched about cybersecurity for a good number of years before it was a viable career for me. Um, it started to become a viable career like around 2017. Um, now it's a growth industry. <laughs> now um, now you know, I can do this full time, but it took a long, long time for it to get to a point where it could be my, it was making me enough money to live on basically. Hmm. Um, so uh, I think uh, Joe Petit at Tripwire State of Security uh, gave me my big break in late 2016. And that led to, you know, working with BlackBerry Silence and uh, AT&T Cybersecurity and Benefy and a lot of other tech companies. And I told you that my career has been changing pretty quickly in the past couple of years. Um, and change is very seldom my idea because I don't like change naturally. So, uh, but I, when the pandemic, when the pandemic hit around this time last year, um, I noticed that a lot of tech companies that I was working for started to cut their marketing budgets. They didn't want people writing for their blog who didn't like, have a full-time job with salary in their company. Like they didn't want to pay people extra to contribute content to their blogs. So I lost a lot of my clients I was working for. And I was really scared because I moved into this really nice apartment, which is also very expensive. But all of a sudden I got, you know, I got all these new professional opportunities entering my life. Um, I was professional friends with Philip Wiley for quite some time. He's a 
he has a lot of experience teaching people about penetration testing. And he was asking me about writing advice until it got to a point where he had a book deal with Wiley, no relation to him. <laughs> and he was so busy with all of his other professional obligations that he couldn't finish the book on his own. He had already written quite a bit of content and he asked me to co-write it with him. And so that's how my uh, co-writing the Pentester Blueprint happened. And I, I had a really great experience working with him. Philip Wiley is like a really, he's a really genuinely nice guy and he really knows his shit when it comes to pen testing. So he had like a real, a lot of great education content. The book is a guide for people who are considering pen testing careers. So it's and not can, as can advanced. Because you, you, you know, mentioned red, red team and stuff. Can you, can you explain uh, pen testing? Because a lot of people won't know what that means or have any idea that it even exists as a job. Um, it stands for penetration testing. So it's when people who sometimes call themselves ethical hackers, uh, they simulate cyber attacks in order to find security vulnerabilities. And uh, the difference between a cyber attack and a pen test is that a pen test, you have the consent of your client and the owner of the network that you're pen testing on. Um, not only do you need the consent of the company that owns the network that you're pen testing or the application that you're pen testing, you, there's also a well-defined scope usually in the contract. So there are certain things that you're allowed to do and there are certain things that you're not allowed to do. Yes, yeah, so I, I, to... I, usually, I usually put in a non-destructive pen test clause so that they can't log in and break anything that they can, <laughs> they can get in. So, yeah, it's a, I mean, obviously, you know quite a bit about pen testing. It can be, it sounds really exciting because you get to pretend to be a malicious uh, cyber criminal when, but you're actually trying to, find security weaknesses so that they can improve the security. And as you know, it's it. there are lots of different types of pen testing. There's like network pen testing and there's application pen testing and there's physical pen testing. And some of it is like network vulnerability scanning. Um, there's a common misconception that a network vulnerability scan is most of what a pen test is, and that's wrong. It's any network vulnerability scanning that you're going to do should only be a part of your pen test. Um, there's also a lot of other things that need to be pen tested, like physical security. Can you physically break into the server room, for example? Or social engineering. Can you fool? The company's employees into giving you information that they're not supposed to be giving you and stuff so like I, that. I used to work at General Electric and, and I was head of IT for, for one of their oper operations in uh, Australia New Zealand 
and we used to have regular physical security pen tests. And the goal was that someone carrying a briefcase which had the word bomb written on a piece of paper inside it, and their target was to put it into the CEO's office. And one of my team had very helpfully opened the door and showed the guy with the bomb to the to the CEO's office. Oh, it was very embarrassing. And it's just like, okay, we need some remedial security for you. There might be some ethical concerns with uh pen testing like that. Was this before or after 9-11? Oh, it was before 9-11. But but it was that was literally the test and it happened globally. It, it happened and it happened randomly, so you never knew when it was. And they were supposed to get stopped at the reception desk. We had key cards and everything, but my guy very helpfully showed them into the office where they left That's fabulous. the desk. Hey, so Kim, for us um, who are not quite so well initiated uh, into anything to do with security, what advice would you give a lay person like myself or perhaps you know, my mum and dad who don't really understand anything about internet security? What advice would you give normal folks from off the street? What are the top two or three things that we can all do to protect ourselves online? Yeah, um, I write about this stuff all the time. Uh, first of all, the majority of households have a wireless router these days. You should go into your router settings and change the default password on your router. That, that should be the first thing that you do okay. because the default username and password for pretty much all wireless routing router models is public knowledge. And cyber attackers will try that combination on your router so change it right away. That will make your wireless LAN a lot safer if you do that. And uh, you can usually go into wireless router settings, assuming that it's all set up in your home by opening a web browser and typing in the IP address for your router. Um, and then I would recommend... Um, Two, two different things when it comes to the authentication of your online accounts. The first is using a password manager. And this was a poor security habit that I had until a couple of years ago was reusing the same password. And the problem with using the same password on your multiple accounts is credential stuffing attacks. Um, data breaches are so incredibly common and I guarantee you that your username and password combination for at least one of your online accounts will be exposed in a data breach, you know, in the, you know, in the next couple of years or less, because it's just so common. And what cyber attackers do is they do what we call a credential stuffing attack. So they found out that the email address that's associated with your user account for Netflix, for instance, you have a certain password for it. They will try that combination on Facebook and various other online services that you have. So the best practice is to use a different password with each of your online services. And to, the number one way to improve the security of your password is to make it as long as the system will allow. And the problem is it's very difficult for human beings to have a unique and like 15, 20 plus character password 
for each of their online services if they're all having to do it on their own. So the beauty of a password manager is it'll remember each of the passwords that you use with each of your online services. You don't have to remember what your passwords are. And every time that you need a new password, you can have it generate one for you. So it takes out a lot of the frustration and there is the risk of, you know, if a cyber attacker attacks the, the uh, password manager that it would reveal all of your credentials. But the common wisdom in our industry is that you're better off with a password manager than without one. And then related to that, go through all of your online accounts and see how many online services you have an account with that allow multi-factor or two-factor authentication. And, uh, and most online services should support 2FA these days. A few don't, like for instance, I have an account with Disney Plus and Disney Plus doesn't support 2FA yet. And that frustrates me to no end. If the online service doesn't support 2FA, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's short of me complaining to Disney Plus about it. But, you know, Facebook, that's about that. Amazon, the majority of online services do support 2FA. So if they do, go into your settings and set it up. And the great thing, so I, I guess I should explain to a layperson what 2FA is. So it's your second factor of authentication other than your password. So the, the beauty of 2FA is if your password does get breached, that's not enough for a cyber attacker to authenticate into your account. They need your second factor of authentication. There are lots of different ways to implement 2FA, but by far the most common way of implementing 2FA for consumers is to have a six or seven digit code sent to your phone, either by uh, text message or email, or there are apps dedicated to a FA like Google Authenticator, for instance. Um, just, just to give folks an example of this. So uh, a while back, Jeff Bezos, the guy that owns Amazon, he got hacked um, by some super professional hackers and they got into his phone photos and got some of his naughty photos and threatened, they blackmailed him and threatened to uh, publicize them. And he said, go ahead, I don't care. But um, it's pretty, pretty clear that he didn't have multi-factor authentication turned on. And that's what happened to him. So it happened to the most, one of the richest guys in the world, you know, so it's really good advice to turn on multi-factor authentication. Yeah. A guy with a $180 billion US net worth and owns, you know, one of the biggest tech companies in the world because Amazon is more of a tech company than a retailer. And he didn't even have 2FA. Yeah. And it's I like, bet he does now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it would be a problem if you or I didn't use 2FA, but he's a gazillion times more of a target than either of us. Yeah, but but it just shows you that you know it can happen to everyone, and it's and it is really sensible advice. One one thing I want to come to Kim is you know you're you're an advocate for for neurodivergency in particular um, autism, and I wanted to um, find out a bit more about that. Okay, yeah, I don't mind talking about it because I did 
come out on AT&T's blog and Blackberry Silence's podcast. So that's as public as it gets for someone like me. That, that's so, what I kind of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I was suspected of being autistic since I was four years old. And there were multiple times throughout my childhood, my adolescence, that I was denied recognition, diagnosis. A lot of it was my dad getting in the way. Um, there were a lot of other factors involved as well. And so, yeah, my early life was really, really shitty. It was really emotionally traumatic. My life is absolutely wonderful now. I have a great life now but I had a pretty traumatic childhood and adolescence and my twenties were pretty traumatic too. My life didn't get good until like my early thirties. Uh, so then adulthood, the main barrier was money because an adult autism diagnosis can be very expensive and it's not covered by Canada's public healthcare system. It wasn't until you know, a handful of years ago that I was making enough money that I could afford to spend $3,000 on a formal diagnosis. So that's what I did when I was 34, because I wanted answers like, why have I been struggling and depressed and traumatized for so long? Why, why does it seem that, you know, the world doesn't understand me and that, and you feel like an alien and, and all that stuff. And finally, I got a formal diagnosis of um, autism, but also um, ADHD inattentive type. And I wasn't expecting the latter diagnosis. Um, the really dark thing, uh, especially if you're diagnosed as an adult, is there is no good support for you if you're an adult, no matter how much money you have. Uh, the best support is actually other autistic people mm -hmm. and other uh, ADHDers and whatnot. Those are the best support that you're going to have. Any anything like in the in the medical system, anyone who is an autistic, they might claim to have expertise and even have the credentials and all that. But really. What is harm, and I consider myself to be a disabled person. Um, what has harmed disabled people the most, I believe, is non-disabled or abled people claiming to be the experts on us. So that, that is a major fight, is for disabled people of all kinds, uh, getting the, taking the dialogue back so that we control, like, for, the autistic narrative, for instance, and for like many other disabilities too. So yeah, I mean, basically I spent like three grand on my diagnosis. I, I spent lots of time with that psychiatrist. He did like a lot of tests on me. And uh, then I got like basically nothing other than like a sheet of paper with my diagnosis. I could at least did the diagnosis though make you feel better that you actually had sort of a label to put on it at last? Yeah, um, it was very cathartic. It, it confirmed something that I'd always suspected about myself and other people suspected about me too. 
Um, I believe, as a lot of us do in the autistic self-advocacy community, that self-diagnosis is valid because unfortunately, for, formal diagnosis is A, very difficult to get and can be very expensive to get, and B, sometimes adults especially have good reason to avoid a formal diagnosis because of the stigma. Mm -hmm. I am super lucky that, you know, with my career and, you know, the kind of industry that I work in and, you know, the fact that I'm financially self-sufficient now and all those other factors, it's safer for me to be open and public about these things than it is for a lot of other people. So I look at that as a privilege because other people could be like fired from their minimum wage jobs, for instance. Like, of course, they're not gonna tell you, oh, we fired you because we found out that you're autistic. They will come up with some excuse. Mm. What advice I don't you, oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just gonna ask you know, if you've got any advice for anybody who's listening right now who thinks perhaps you know, they may have some traits that might you know, sort of put them on the autism spectrum. What, what advice do you have for anyone out there who, maybe struggling with that too oh yeah um i would recommend going online searching for the autistic self-advocacy network or the autistic women and non-binary network those organizations primarily operate in the united states but they do help people worldwide um, i'm sure that there are autistic run organizations in Australia, and I know that there are artistic-run organizations in the UK as well. Um, search them out. Um, if you're on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, search for the hashtag actually autistic. It's a hashtag that people who are actually autistic use. Um, and you can use that hashtag to find people who are actually autistic. and. Uh, and ask them, be like, I, I suspect that I might be autistic. Where do I go from here? How do I know? And speak to the community about it and do, do your own research. I would recommend prioritizing information that comes from autistic people over information that comes from non-autistic people. Very frequently, information that comes from non-autistic people can be harmful like for instance promoting like ABA and stuff like oh that oh my god yeah exactly so um I think just like with other things like transgender rights and stuff like that we're at a point where it you know disabled people controlling the disability narrative will become gradually more of a mainstream thing mm -hmm. But like we're at a breaking point at this point. When we saw like how I was I was very happy that, you know, that the autistic community has been fighting very hard against Sia's new movie, which is incredibly harmful and disgusting. And I don't think there would have been that kind of a wide vocal backlash about something like that even 10 years ago. So that I think it reflects how the autistic community has been growing in, in influence. So, so things like- Broader recognition. Sorry? Now, I think now there's broader recognition that 
neurodivergence is a lot more common than people had previously understood because everybody who was neurodivergent was trying to pass the neurotypical. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know how stressful that is, having to, yeah, passing or sometimes people call it masking and having to mask for years can cause like really serious mental health problems in people. So, so yeah, you've got an excellent point there. Um, Kim, what about for the, you know, sort of non-neurodivergent like myself, what are some of the things that I can do better to be an ally to people who are neurodivergent? That's an excellent question. I'm glad that you asked it. Uh, my boyfriend is completely neurotypical. So I've spent a lot of time like trying to educate him about things. And he's absolutely wonderful, amazing boyfriend to me now. Uh, but finally trained him. Hey, <laughs> I trained him. Exactly. Um, listen to autistic people or listen about autism. Listen to people with ADHD about ADHD. Listen to people with dyslexia about dyslexia and so on and so forth, so forth. Like value the voices of people who have firsthand experience over people who don't have firsthand experience. And if you just, I mean, that's how I've been educating myself about transgender rights, for instance. Like I'm cis, but I have learned so much about the transgender community just by looking at the discussions that transgender people have been having with each other on social media over the years and just listening and just reading with an open mind. And I have learned so much. And I, I'm pretty sure that if you're not neurodivergent, you can learn about us and how to, how to treat us well by listening to the conversations that we have online as well with an open mind. And I think that is a perfect spot to draw this to a close. Thank you so much, Kim. Lovely to see you again, Annie. And this will be up on all the media, social media channels soon. Thanks very much. That's Thank you so much for having me on your show.